Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Did you ever see the show on ABC called Extreme Makeover? If you missed it, it's now in run in reruns, but uh, it was a show where people who were unhappy with their appearance would apply to the producers to undergo a complete change. They would get free plastic surgery, LASIK surgery, cosmetic dentistry, hairstyle, makeup, clothes. They would put them in a fitness program. During the process, which would often take six to eight weeks, they would have to agree that they would be isolated from their family and friends. And then at the end of each episode, they would come out and reveal their transformation. And their family and friends would say, whoa, I can't believe that's her. Reminds me of a joke I heard about Jane who went into the hospital for surgery and she was afraid she was going to die. And so she asked the Lord, Lord, is this it? Am I going to die? And the Lord said, no, Jane, according to my records, you're going to live another 43 years and 12 days. She said, well, thank you, Lord. Realizing she had so much time left, she decided to make the most of it. So while she was in the hospital, she got a complete makeover. Liposuction tummy tuck, nose job, facelift. On the day she got out of the hospital, she was walking across the road, got hit by a bus, and killed instantly. She said, Lord, you told me I had another 40 years. He said, Jane, is that you? <laughs> External makeovers are nice but they're not permanent. A facelift will fall. A tummy tuck will come untucked. A wrinkle remover will only delay the inevitable. But internal makeovers are incredible. They are miraculous. They are amazing because they are permanent. They last forever. And God is the only surgeon who does the internal kind. He has been doing extreme makeovers for centuries. Internal, eternal makeovers. And in verses 15 to 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a guy who had an extreme makeover on the road to Damascus highlights the aspects of our extreme makeover. And in these verses, we can pick out four new things that we have that make us radically different. Four things that should cause your family and friends to say, whoa, I can't believe that's him. Number one is a new purpose. It's popular today to be purpose-driven, to live life on purpose. So let me ask you, What is your purpose for living? Many people get up every morning and go to a job they don't like, to make money they can't save, to buy things they can't afford, to impress people they can't stand. What's your purpose for living? Though I doubt that most people would verbalize their purpose statement, this is what it would be. I live for me. 
That's the purpose that comes naturally as human beings. But as Christians, we get a new purpose. Look at verse 15, and for sake of connection, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Did you get your new purpose? My purpose is no longer I live for me. My purpose is I live for him. When my purpose is I live for me, that's sin. Because sin in its simplest definition is selfishness. And verse 14 tells us a great truth. And that is that not only did Jesus die for my sin, but I died to sin. Which means in Christ I am free from selfishness. I no longer have to fulfill that purpose that is natural to me. That is, I live for me. I can now live for Him. And what is living for Him? That is love. The love of Christ controls me. Living for self is selfishness. Living for Him is love. Because what does the Bible say? No greater love has this than a man lay down his life for his friend. What's your purpose in life? Is it I live for me or I live for him? Is your theme song, it's all about me? Or it's all about you, Jesus? Living for Him is the unique privilege that God gives us as believers. And He makes it easy because I'm already dead. It's pretty easy to lay down my life when I'm not breathing anymore. I died with Christ on the cross, so it should be easy to say I want to lay down my life living for me and start living for Him. You see, God doesn't do renovations. I, I made the mistake last night of having Jackie Reese come over to my house. She's an interior decorator, and she walked around my house and said, well, there's just a few changes that you would need to make to kind of update this place. And we walked through every room, and it was always, well, we need to take all this down and repaint that and change this and change that. And by the end, I was discouraged. I was like, that's a lot of work, and that's a lot of money to just do a little update, a little renovation on your house. Let me tell you something. God is not into renovations. God is into resurrections. He doesn't fix you up. He doesn't improve you. He doesn't enhance you. He doesn't do a little cosmetic work on you. He takes you and He nails you to the cross. And then He raises you to walk in newness of life. That's exciting. I'm discouraged by renovation. I'm excited about resurrection. One of the very first English novels ever written was Robinson Crusoe, written by Daniel Dufoe in 1719. Robinson Crusoe was involved in a shipwreck where everyone else perished but him, and so he lived 
for 28 years on an island. During the course of his time there, he rescued a native from death by cannibals, and he named that native Friday. Every time Crusoe saw him, he could say, thank God it's Friday. Crusoe taught Friday to speak English and then later led him to faith in Jesus Christ. And out of his gratitude for saving his life, Friday became Crusoe's lifelong companion and servant. Friday followed him everywhere he went. I would suggest that we should be like Friday. We were lost we were enslaved, we were doomed, and Jesus rescued us from eternal death. And because of his great love for us, we should love him enough to follow him anywhere. Lindsay has developed me into a rather auspicious texter because she texts me all the time, and I'm pretty good at it now. My phone is pretty obsolete, but I'm pretty good at it. And sometimes, just out of the blue, she'll send me a text, and the text will simply say, I love you. Now, I have several options when I get that text. I can ignore it. Or I can respond to it and say, thanks, T-H-X, I'm pretty hip. <laughs> or I can do what I always do, and that is text back to her and say, I love you too. Or I love you more. Or I love you most. Jesus has sent you a text message. His text is the cross. And the cross shouts in capital letters, I love you. How do you respond? Shrug your shoulders and ignore it? Or respond by saying, thanks, but I've got my life to live. Or do you say, I love you too? You love me enough to lay down your life for me. I love you enough to lay down my life for you. You see, that's our new purpose. Second thing in our extreme makeover is a new perspective. Look at verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to to the flesh. When our purpose is no longer selfish, then our perspective is no longer fleshly. He says we recognize no one according to the flesh. Now what is the flesh? Well, the Bible uses it as that term of our physical body. In, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul is debating about his future and he says to depart and be with Christ would be great, but I'd also like to remain on in the flesh. The flesh being this flesh carton that we live inside of. 
the same thing that he mentioned in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians in verse 16 when he talked about our outer man that is decaying. So it's used of our flesh, our physical body. It's also used of our fallen nature. He uses it that way in Romans chapter 7. It's the sinful nature that we all inherited from Adam. Every one of us is born with a self-centered nature called the flesh. It's that sinful nature with its uh, desire to do its own will, which it's, with its desire to satisfy itself. In, in, in fact, if you really want to summarize what the flesh is, the flesh is simply the you apart from Christ. Whatever you are, whatever you were, apart from Christ is the flesh. Because everything apart from Christ is worth nothing. It's worthless. That's why Jesus did what? Nailed it to the cross. So it's your will, your desires, your dreams, your appetites pervaded with sin so that you are encased in selfishness and pride. That's your flesh. And that's who Christ died for. Galatians 5.24 says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the flesh is a term which covered the, covers the fallen part of man, my fallen nature and my fallen body. And since I died, the me that was in Christ died, and since my fallen body, according to chapter 4 and verse 16, is decaying, therefore the flesh should no longer be the criteria I use for evaluating other people. I need a new perspective. We no longer recognize people the way we used to, is what Paul tells us. We no longer recognize people the way the world does. Now, what does it mean to recognize somebody according to the flesh? Well, to figure out what that means, you simply have to look at the way the world recognizes people. Because the world is made up basically of everybody who is fleshly. So what's the world's perspective on evaluating somebody? It's easy to figure out. Just list the criteria for how the world evaluates people, and you can get it. One is fame. Are you famous? One is status. What's your job? Do you have a, a prestigious job, a title? That's status. Wealth. Do you have money? Appearance. Are you attractive? Are you handsome? Are you beautiful? Do you belong in GQ magazine? See, any one of those things that you answer yes to raises your stock when you're evaluating according to the flesh. We do that subconsciously. What's the first question we ask people? What's your name? When they tell us, we say, never heard of you. Or, I think I've heard of you. You're famous. Second question we ask them is what? What do you do for a living? And when they tell us, we say, hmm, that's a prestigious job. Their stock goes up. Then we say, that's your car? Pretty nice ride. Is that your real hair? See, we're evaluating according to the flesh. And what we're seeing in this passage is 
that none of those things are in God's criteria. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. So he's saying we need a new perspective as we become believers. We need to stop looking at people from a fleshly standpoint and start looking at them from God's standpoint. In fact, in Luke chapter 16 and verse 15, it says, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Wow. What is highly esteemed among men? Fame, status, wealth, appearance. We're told those things are detestable in the sight of God when it comes to measuring the worth of an individual. In fact, let me show you some verses. Look at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible because it contains probably my favorite phrase in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, after talking about people of faith and listing various people who live by faith, he gets to the end of the chapter and he just kind of summarizes because he says there's so many other people I can mention, I don't have time. So he just kind of generalizes it. And look down at verse 36, and we pick up in the middle of a sentence. He says, Others experience mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And then parenthesis, here it is men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Those people that were detestable to the world, God esteemed most highly. And those people that the world esteems most highly, God finds detestable because he doesn't grade us by the same system that we do. He doesn't recognize people according to the flesh. And when you come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you find out something interesting as we continue on in verse 16. It says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Paul says we used to use our fleshly perspective to evaluate Christ. We analyze Him according to the flesh. Now how does Christ measure up when you analyze Him according to the flesh? What about fame? Remember in John chapter 1, Philip met Jesus and he came and talked to his friend Nathaniel and he said in verse 45, we have found Him, the one whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what did Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Never heard of the guy. And he comes from the backwoods, and nobody ever came out of there that was of any importance. He was looking at it from a fleshly standpoint and saying, he's got no fame. How about status? What's he do? Well, he's a carpenter. But he's been unemployed for the past three years. And when you ask him what he does, all he says is, I do the will of my Father in heaven. He's got no status. How about wealth? 
Jesus said the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was born in a borrowed stable. When he wanted to make an illustration, he had to borrow a coin to do it. He rode on a borrowed donkey. When he wanted to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, he had to borrow a room. When he died on the cross, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. How about his appearance? What did Jesus look like? I can guarantee you this. Most of the pictures you see are wrong. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 53 too. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah says when we used our fleshly perspective, we didn't esteem him. And Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, we once knew him according to the flesh, and we missed him. We rejected him. And Paul could say that personally. He said, I actually hated him and persecuted him and hated his followers and sought them down, hunted them down to put them to death. Look at verse 16 again. He says, Yet now, we know him in this way no longer. We no longer know Jesus according to the flesh. Back in chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, The veil that we had over our eyes, which Satan blinded us with, has been removed, and now we can see from a different vantage point. We have a new perspective, and now we know him as the one who is esteemed above all else. Now we know him as, as the one who is exalted to the right hand of God. Now we know him as the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we know him as the one in whom dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. Now we know him as the one who he said in chapter 4 and verse 6, in whose face shines forth the knowledge of the glory of God. We have a new perspective on Christ. We know Him in a new way, and because we know Him in a new way, we know others in a new way. We have a new perspective on other people. And what is it? What is our perspective on other people? Well, it's captured in two words in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. In Christ. We recognize people in two categories. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ, and that's the only thing that matters eternally. So it doesn't matter whether you look good. It doesn't matter if you drive a fine car. It doesn't matter if you have a big house. It doesn't matter if you have fame in this world. What matters is, are you in Christ? And if you're not, then you don't have anything. Which brings us to our third thing in our extreme makeover. A new identity. And that's in that first phrase in, in verse 17. Those two words, in Christ, are two of the most important words in the Bible. 
In fact, that phrase or its equivalent appears 172 times in the New Testament. Paul alone uses that phrase 97 times in his letters. Now, you usually hear Christians talk a lot about Christ being in me. You don't hear them talk a lot about being in Christ. You say, well, which is it, Dan? Is he in me or am I in him? Both. See, if I took a big tub of water up here this morning and I put a bottle in the water and it sunk down to the bottom, would the water be in the bottle? Or would the water be, would the water, how did I say that? You try this, it's not easy. Would the water be in the bottle or would the bottle be in the water? Thank you. Both. In his book, The Saving Life of Christ, Ian Thomas wrote, To be in Christ, that is redemption. But for Christ to be in you, that is sanctification. To be in Christ, that makes you fit for heaven. But for Christ to be in you, that makes you fit for earth. To be in Christ, that changes your destination. But for Christ to be in you, that changes your destiny. The one, the one makes heaven your home, the other makes this world his workshop. Your identity, whether you realize it or not yet, is wrapped up in the phrase, in Christ. So one of the most important questions I can ask you this morning is this. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? From what do you get your identity in life? You say, well, my identity comes from being a wife. I am Mrs. So-and-so. Or my identity comes from being a husband. Well, that's a noble relationship. But when your spouse dies or your spouse divorces you, then who are you if that's your identity? You say, well, my identity comes from my job. Okay, what happens when you retire or lose your job? You say, I, I derive my main identity from being a parent. Wonderful role. But what happens when your child dies? Or your children get over, older and move out and start their own families? That's when parents often look at their spouse and say, who are you? You say, my identity comes from being a great basketball player. My identity comes from being a great golfer. Well, you are one injury away from losing that identity. You see, the only answer that will transcend this world is that my identity comes from being in Christ. Identity theft is a big problem today. But it's not a new problem. Satan has been trying to steal people's identity for centuries. The Bible says Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Have you heard him lately? Satan says, you're a sinner. You'll never measure up. God says, you're a saint. You already measure up. Satan says, you get your identity from what you've done. God says, you get your identity from what I have done for you. 
Satan says, you are who others say you are. God says, you are who I say you are. Satan says, you are alive and well. God says, you have died. And your life is hidden in Christ. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with Him in glory. Who are you listening to as you define your identity? Here are just a few of the benefits we have in Christ. The Bible tells us we receive grace in Christ. Our redemption is in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We have forgiveness of sins in Christ. There is no condemnation in Christ. We have eternal life in Christ. God supplies all our needs in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing of heaven in Christ. We will be presented to God perfect in Christ, and we cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ. That's our new identity. Which brings us to the fourth point, and that's a new nature. A woman was walking through the park when a frog jumped out and said, if you kiss me, I'll become a prince and marry you. She thought about it for a minute and then picked up the frog and put him in her purse and kept walking. A bystander saw this and was curious and asked, why didn't you kiss that frog? And the lady said, a talking frog is worth more to me than a talking man. That's a bad illustration to make my point. And my point is that becoming a Christian isn't like a tadpole becoming a frog. Becoming a Christian is like a frog becoming a prince. You become something altogether new and different. Look at verse 17 again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Please get this this morning. You don't just decide to start living like a Christian. You have to become a Christian. And becoming a Christian involves a new creation. The old life can't be remodeled. It can't be renovated, even by God. In Romans 7, 18, Paul says, In my flesh dwells no good thing. It's not salvageable. God looks at it and says, There's nothing to build on. That's why He takes you and He nails you to the cross because you, apart from Christ, are worthless. And that's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, a very religious man, a teacher, in fact, it says the teacher in Israel, He said to him, you must be born again. You must become a new creature. Listen to these verses. Galatians 6.15 For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Ephesians 2.10 We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Colossians 3.10, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one 
who created him. Becoming a Christian is not a decision that you make. It's not a lifestyle change. You are transformed. The old you dies, and you are resurrection, resurrected, and God creates an altogether new nature that he puts inside of you. So a Christian is not simply a person who gets something, who gets forgiveness, who gets to go to heaven, who gets the Holy Spirit. A Christian is a person who becomes someone he was not before. Becoming a Christian is not just getting something. However wonderful that something may be, it's becoming someone, a new creation. And that's what happens to everyone in Christ. He says the old things are passed away. What are the old things? The old things are the things associated with the flesh, my self-centered life. They're gone. They're passed away. The new things are what? They are the things associated with my new life, which is Christ-centered. Here are some of the things the Bible says are new in your life. You have a new name. You have a new heart. You have a new spirit. You are a new man. You have a new covenant with God. You walk a new way. You sing a new song. You obey a new commandment. There are new heavens, new earth, a new Jerusalem. Revelation 21.5 says, Behold, I am making all things new. You are a new person in Christ. The old you has died. You say, well, Dan, why do I struggle all the time? Because the old you is still here. You're a new you. You still have the old you around, and you're encased in this old decaying body. This old decaying body has impulses that it wants to do the old way of life. So I struggle with that. I still live in a world whose standards say you should live this way. And that's why he tells us in this passage we need some new motivations. In verse 11, we need the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of man. And in verse 14, we need the love of Christ rather than the love of me to motivate me to live like I ought to so that people are looking at me and saying, whoa, I can't believe that's him. Pete Maravich was one of the greatest basketball players in history. He holds the all-time college scoring record, which I doubt will ever be topped. He averaged 44 points a game. And that was before the three-point line. It, Pete Maravich actually destroyed my basketball game because I modeled my game after him. So I spent most of my time practicing 25-foot fallaway jumpers, which I'm pretty good at. But coaches don't like that shot. He was also the first million-dollar player in the NBA. But for all his public fame, he lived most of his life as a troubled, unhappy man. A few years ago, when talk show host Larry King had heart surgery, he received his, this letter from Pete Maravich, who had recently appeared on his program. The letter said, Dear Larry, I'm so glad to hear that everything went well with your surgery. I want you to know that God is watching over you every minute. And even though I know you question that, I also know that one day it will be revealed to you. My prayer is that you remain open and God will touch your life as he has mine. Once I was a disbeliever, when I could not fill my life with basketball, I would simply substitute sex, liquid drugs, 
or material things to feed my internal shell-like appearance, I was never satisfied. I have finally realized after 40 years that Jesus Christ is in me. My life is under new management. He will reveal his truth to you, Larry, because he lives. Signed, your friend, Pete Maravich. Larry King got that letter on a Monday. On the next day, Pistol Pete died suddenly while playing a pickup basketball game with James Dobson, wearing a T-shirt that said, Looking Unto Jesus. I like that phrase, under new management. Because verse 14 says, the love of Christ controls us. Pete Maravich was under new management. He had a new purpose, living for Jesus rather than living for himself. He had a new perspective, not a fleshly criteria, but a spiritual criteria. That's why he was reaching out to Larry King to try to get Larry King to understand what it means to be in Christ because that's all that matters. He had a new identity. He saw himself now in Christ and he had a new nature. He was a new creation. Old things passed away. He could talk about those things he used to be in the past because they were no longer a part of his life. He was living a new life in Christ. And I'm sure his family and friends were saying, whoa, I can't believe that's Pete Maravich. How about you? Are people saying that about you? Whoa, I can't believe that's him. I can't believe that's her. Look at the transformation in their life. You know, the key word in this passage is found in verse 17. You may have overlooked it. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ. That's a question that you better take seriously. Because if you're sitting here today and you don't know that you're in Christ, if you still have an if with a question mark, I'm not sure, then your life has not been transformed. So I would be irresponsible today if I didn't invite you to come in childlike faith to Jesus Christ. To come and put your total trust in Him and allow Him to do that extreme makeover on you, to give you a new purpose, to give you a new perspective, to give you a new identity, to give you a new nature that He has created that will last forever. And so as the praise team comes back and we close today, I'm going to challenge you to answer that question before Him. Am I in Christ? And if not, I invite you to come to Him today. If you want to come down and pray with somebody, we'll be down at the front. But he's right there knocking on your life, wanting to come in. And you can allow him to come in by simple faith today. Why not settle that issue today? Because it's the most important decision to make, not only in this life, but in eternity. Let's stand as we close together and worship the Lord.